My father had just had minor surgery on his leg and was given explicit instructions to stay still for five days. So we had a good deal of time to talk. What time is the best time to take a nap? Three (laughs) o'clock. I think three o'clock is perfect. You should look for three, three hours and fifteen. It's perfect. Three hours? No, no. From three to four, four fifteen. An hour and a quarter. Perfect. I think it's too much. Think it's too much? Yeah, I think you, I think you need um, an hour, forty-five minutes, forty-five to fifty 45. minutes. Forty-five. You want to sleep more? Yeah, but, but if you had one leg like I do, <laughs> you need more time. I would think that you would need that you would need less time because, <laughs> because you have less body. <laughs> In his two thousand seven memoir, "The Father of All Things." Tom Bissell chronicles a return to Vietnam with his father, who was a Marine and fought there during the war. On page 101, Bissell writes the following. There were two types of Vietnam veteran, those who talked about the war and those who did not talk about it. My father talked about the war, though, if anything, this only deepened the abyss between us. I'd learned something from discussions with those who had veteran fathers. This was that our father seemed remote because the war itself was impossibly remote. Chances were the war had happened pre-you, before you had come to grasp the sheer accident of your own placement in time, before you recognized that the reality of yourself, your bedroom, your dolls and comic books, had nothing to do with the reality of your father. This strange lost war, simultaneously real and unimaginable, forced us to confront the past before we had any idea of what the past really was. The war made us think theoretically long before we had the vocabulary to do so. Despite its remoteness, the war's after-effects were inescapably intimate. At every meal, Vietnam sat down, invisibly, with our families. There's a lot about Tom Bissell's father, John, that reminds me of my father. And there are several recollections in the book which are eerily familiar. There's a lot about Tom Bissell's father which of course is very different from mine. My purpose here is not to make those comparisons but rather to introduce my father who went to Vietnam in the fall of 1967. Beyond that the details of the story are his to tell. He is now 76 years old. I won't even say semi-retired because he refuses to do it even though everybody he knows, including his assistant, has been telling him for a while that it's time to hang up the latex gloves. He's been a dentist for half a century, and it was in that capacity, as a dentist, that he went to Vietnam. Though I'm very, very close with my father, he's one of my closest friends, the abyss that Tom Bissell describes is one that I really understand. As kids... My sister and I would hear some of the more humorous and quirky stories that he would tell about his experiences there. He'll tell one or two of those here, but much of the rest of what he talks about is something that he kept from us. With good reason. Some of those reasons he's unveiled. Some, I imagine, will forever remain a mystery. I have a lot of guys that... Yes. No, go ahead. I have a lot of guys that I would like to do this with. What would you you ask them? I would ask them about their lives. Are they, do they think it's really 
necessary to continue to do what they're doing for the rest of their lives? Or will they wake up at 50 or 60 and want to shoot themselves? Which is, I think, most people. You? Did you wake up at 50 and want to shoot? No. No, I did not wake up at 50. I actually, even though I would say, someone just asked me recently, what percentage of the time are you happy? And I said 18%, which I thought was overage. <laughs> I thought, and I'm not, I'm, I might be laughing a little here, but I'm serious about this. Uh, did you ever see that picture up there? I'm just a yes, stream of consciousness. Shirley and Everett. Shirley, the dress is unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable. It is. It's, it, it was it, twice it, as long as she was. I know. She was very to look dumb. at them, you would think that they were tall people. They aren't. They aren't. They aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but the picture makes them look tall. That is a really Everett, good photographer. Everett. He's actually five feet six, and she was five one. I so, know. So that's why you get your jeans. That's one of the reasons. Used to ask me when you were ten and twelve, when am I going to grow? And I used to say, "Wait." And then when you got to be fifteen and sixteen, I said, "I don't think so. It's not happening." At least you were honest about it. I was honest about it. I never lied to you. Well, maybe, <laughs> sorry, but I, I don't, <laughs> in general principles, I didn't lie. Can I tell a joke? Now? <laughs> Do you want to tell the joke? <laughs> no, later at the end, <laughs> we'll end with the joke. <laughs> Well, that is a nice little segue <laughs> into what racism in America. Well, which is not just in America, but which what? What do you want to say about racism in America? It's the reason for everything. It's the reason for this um, complete idiot a step away from the White House. That's the reason. All of this is predicated on American racism, which is ingrained in the American public. Before we go on, we should just. Probably tell the that I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> I am Albert Lloyd Schindler, dentist. I'm a D DDS, but I never say that because it's embarrassing. Being a dentist is has been my whole life been embarrassing, and the reason for that is, you know, you don't want to have a title. Having a title, you're just saying that you're somehow better than somebody else, which is total bullshit. Nobody's better than anybody else. How old are you? Uh, let's see. It was during the Taft administration. <laughs> William Howard. You are 75 years old. You grew up in the, the Bronx. Bronx. The Bronx. And also, although we don't like to admit it. In the way of Jersey. You know, right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I try not to admit that. I, so, so, I, as I grew up in the Bronx, there was not a black presence in the area. It was mostly, the neighborhood was mostly Jews, Jews and Italians. Um, and Irish. When I was 14, my father lost his mind, and we moved to New Jersey. Uh, it was some business opportunity uh, which went in the toilet, but that was uh, another issue. And uh, there there were... So, it, it, New Jersey, this was Union, New Jersey. It's like middle America. It could be Ohio. It's, it's, that's what it is. I mean, it's all these little towns, and it was, it was a former... Nazi bund town during the Second World War, so that you had like Beer Temple Park. There were a lot of ex-Nazis there, so it was it was a white city of a, I don't remember thirty thousand something like that, but it was not what I would call a diverse uh, area. There, there turned out to be though an area it was called Vauxhall section which had blacks, and that was the first time that I really ran into 
uh, a fair number of black people. Not that the school had, maybe it had 8%, 10%, maybe even less uh, blacks, but everybody else was white American, and very few Jews. I was it in this high school. So you played basketball. Ah, Yes, I had played basketball in in New York. I had gone to high school in New York uh, as a freshman. And then when I went to New Jersey, that was the focus of my life. I I would go down to uh, parks and places, and that's where your black guys were. They played. And so... In New Jersey. Right. And in order to make the new team, which is a big deal, I had to play. So all the summer before my, I went into my junior year, I played every day eight, ten hours a day, uh, and it was with mostly black guys. So you got to know, uh, you know, 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 know them. And what was that, I mean, <laughs> you know, you did you have preconceived notions about what that community was like, or were you completely just uh, going in like a blank slate? Uh, well, my, I probably more of a blank slate, but I also carried with me the Jewish... Holocaust mentality that went through because that's when I grew up. My my mother was an immigrant. Uh, part of her family was killed in the in the Holocaust. So I carried that as with me wherever I went. To this day, I carry that with me. So that had a part to do with it. The Black Americans were the Jews of Europe, uh, and so I actually did have that in my mind when I would interact with... That, that there was sort of a, a, a camaraderie there, that there was something Correct. common. They were the underclass of America, they got the short end of the stick, which is still happening, and therefore I sort of had this, uh, you know, feel feeling for that. Especially growing up in central New Jersey, there's a certain um, story told about the United States. Um, uh, a certain kind of, especially coming out immediately out of the Second World War, this is the mid-1950s, early 1960s when you were in high school uh, and college, and you probably didn't give sort of a second thought about that narrative, right? You, the history book said, we're the victors, we're the good guys, uh, we spread democracy, this is the freest country in the world. And then when, when you know, our first real action in Vietnam is, happens almost immediately on the heels of the Korean police action, um, I assume the reports and, and there was no, like, questioning it was, again, this is the United States military, this is United States diplomacy, making sure the world is safe for democracy. That's what I'm going to assume. Right. That you were imbued with that message and you bought it hook, line, and sinker. My generation believed that America was the best country in the world. We would do the right thing. And that was part of the culture. Everybody I knew thought the same thing. And I thought that the Korean War, they gave you the, you know, was stopping communism. It was the old communism business. It was shortly after the Second World War. And guys were getting drafted. It was, it was like a repeat. It lasted two or three years, but we took horrendous casualties. I think it was well into the 30,000. That were killed. Was that reported at the time that we were that that uh, you know Americans? Not like this. The, in the Second World War, you got daily reports. It's here. It was. It was not. You, you would hear a little bit about it. You, you didn't really know what you knew. What Americans knew was that the American leader MacArthur, who was a hero, an iconic American hero like Eisenhower, 
would do the right thing, even though it turned out he was completely out of his mind. And as a result, caused the deaths of a lot of American soldiers. He said two weeks before, the Chinese would never enter this war. Uh, they came down a million strong. We were totally unprepared, and they wiped out guys left and right. So you began at that point to get the feeling maybe there's something amiss here. Maybe they're not telling us everything we're supposed to know. But your high school teachers weren't no. going down that road. No. Your local newspaper didn't have op-eds or... They just reported no the news. No. There was no negative. There was none of that. It wasn't like the Vietnam War. Okay. So let's go to the Vietnam War then. Uh, we'll chart your path quickly, which is you graduate from uh, the State University of Rutgers in 1962. Uh, and then you went immediately to dental school. Is that right? Yes. Uh, New York University Dental yes. School yes. Manhattan, uh, and you finished there in '66. Correct. Um, you got married. Yes. Uh, to the person known as my mother. Yes. And then things I, changed pretty dramatically in a way that I don't know that you necessarily would have ever expected when you were in dental school, which was or or, or maybe the, I, I don't know what was your so you're okay you're graduating they, they, it's the spring they, of nineteen sixty six. They gave you the option of joining something called the Berry Plan, which enabled you they I think you could finish school, but you'd have to give them I think four or five years to give the army. I said, I'm never gonna do that, they're not gonna draft me. PS they drafted me. <laughs> well, okay, let's... <laughs> <laughs> the mentality, what are you thinking? You're 26 years old. You're getting married. Can I put it in a vernacular here, or can I have to keep this clean? You can use a vernacular. I it's, said, I can, I, can, I can tell you right now, they sent a letter in February, March of my senior year in dental school, and the letter was in green typeface, and it says, said, Greetings. <laughs> And I go, what the hell? And U.S. government. And I said, what the hell is this? Department of the Army, U.S. government. I go, what the hell? And I start reading this, and I realize these mothers have drafted me. And they gave me the option of going in as a private or a captain. And they told me how to report to uh, down in the city, Whitehall Street, which where they gave you a physical, which was one of the comedy acts of all time. <laughs> and... All manner of guys trying to get out of draft, coming and limping, and you know, all all kinds with notes from doctors and all kinds of crap. And uh, they drafted me, and I was getting married in June, and I left in July. Uh, so it was uh, left for uh, uh, Kansas, Fort Riley, Kansas. The question that I want to ask you right now is is about your mentality. What were you thinking? I mean, you obviously were an, you know an adult by that point you were aware I wasn't a real adult <laughs> I was a school adult in other words I had never seen real life I had you know I had a summer job but but I was in school my whole life so I'm 25 years old all I ever knew was school and so I didn't have any ra I, I did read a lot but I had very little rational thought about politics or or life the right. thoughts that that what was inculcated into America was we're stopping communism. The theory at the time was if we don't stop them here, they'll continue and keep taking over all of the Asian countries and blah, blah, blah. Now, these places to us, or, to, you know, at that point, didn't mean anything to us. Laos, Cambodia, who cared? And 
if we did do it, we were on the right. It was the, the Americans are doing the right thing. No one, no one thought in depth about what we had done after the Second World War. Korea was a, a, probably a, a mistake, but we didn't, we didn't look in, in depth. I, this, this Domino is, theory was what they, we called it. Right. You get the letter, and the first thing that goes through your head is... Where are they going to send me? What's going to happen here? And then they, they didn't usually send you immediately. They sent you someplace else. And I'm figuring I'm a dentist. The chances of me going. And it was a huge base. There were two full American divisions, the 1st and the 9th, uh, that were sent out of... At Fort Riley. At Fort Riley. So there were 54 dentists on posts. I figured, I'm out of the odds. I'm, you know, I'm in good shape here. And then I get another letter... <laughs> Uh, or, or the, in this one, the colonel comes down to the clinic. Says, uh, "I have orders here for you. We're sending you someplace in Southeast Asia." I, I, <laughs> I come home <laughs> and I tell my wife, and she says, "You got to be kidding! We're going to fight this." I said, "I don't think you can fight this. I think you know I'm history." So, of the fifty-four dentists, three guys go. So it's myself, a, guy, a black guy named Earl Stores an Italian guy from Chicago who actually I knew well, a guy named Tempestini. Uh, and Earl fought it. He said it was racism. Next time I saw him was downtown Saigon. <laughs> Didn't work out that well. First we went to uh, California, and uh, my roommate was a West Pointer. They gave you three or four days. They gave you uniforms, shots, stuff like that. You know, they gave you basic. They told you about what are you doing, a sucking chest wound. <laughs> what are you kidding? <laughs> so the other guy who was, who was at that point a second lieutenant, um, who was at West Pointer and a pretty good guy, uh, later on, uh, three, four months later, I got a, he, that he was killed. Okay. So at this time, my guess is, and again, you can sort of push back on this. My guess is you're just in a whirlwind. You're like, I have no idea. You have what no idea going what's going on. Right. You have no idea where you're going. I'm sure you didn't even really have a sense of where Vietnam was on a map. No. Uh, so you, you know you're literally like. I knew it wasn't New Jersey. In, in, a, in another world, they send you there. You do your thing. When at what point do you begin to kind of absorb what's happening around you and begin to have a more informed opinion about it. And I ask you that because I know that you, being who you are, start to seek out more information about the place that you were in and about the history of the people that you were supposedly in service of, right? I mean, that is why we went there, in service of the South Vietnamese, at least that's the spoken reason. Right. Uh, at what point did you begin to kind of consciously, cognitively think about what was happening in front of you and what part you were playing in it? About two or, two or three months into it, I mean, we, myself and two other stiffs were, at, were stationed at outside of Tansunud Air Base. The main base was in Saigon. Tansunud Air Base is about, what, 15 miles outside of Saigon? 20 miles outside of Saigon. And we would drive out every day, and it was sort of we were removed from what was actually happening. I mean, as you drove through the streets, you know, you saw all the uh, machine gun stuff and all of that stuff. But after a while, you don't even see that. And to me, who had never been really outside of New York, this was totally foreign. And it was totally foreign for most of the guys. And no one gave it a thought, was this right or wrong? They were there. They had to go through a year. And then that would be it. But as the 
the first months went on, you realized that these were real people. They were a fairly well-educated people. They, uh, a lot of them spoke French because the French had been there so so long, a hundred years. And I had a, an assistant who was a Vietnamese woman, a little tiny woman. And what was she, her name? Nguyen Thi Nam. Right before Ted happens, she lived in Saigon. She and she said, "Sir, no go. Don't go out. Don't go. Stay in a BOQ. Don't go to work. Don't leave." And I would say to her, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "Something bad's going to happen." And she was right. <laughs> and then when it ended finally, and she didn't come, she couldn't get in either. And then when we, the first day back, she came running over and gave me, a, she put her arms around me. And uh, she was just, uh, you know, crying. And it was, it was, you know, very moving, put it that way. I began to see, uh, you know, th that these people were caught in an impossible situation. And as it went on, you saw the GIs who were, you know, these were kids who got drafted. Uh, I remember one incident um, we're riding in a, we had a Jeep. There were, there were, one, two, three, there were three of us who worked at Tansunur in our own little, little dental unit. Everybody else was downtown and there was about 12 or 14 guys in the other unit. And we were driving out to Tansunur behind a truck and the Vietnamese had a lot of, uh, little motor scooters. That's how they got around. And these guys were kicking them off the motor scooter. The GIs would kick the Vietnamese off the motor scooter. I mean, and I, I remember thinking, what, what the hell, what, what's up here? What's going on? And it was palpable hatred for both the South Viet, just in general. Uh, and, you know, these were uneducated kids for the most part who were getting killed um, at high numbers. And you could see there was something not right about it. And then as I began reading and, you know, finding out from home what was happening... What they what what the American press was sending back wasn't what I was seeing, and it just and more and more troops came. Uh, when I was there, it was like five hundred and fifty thousand troops. What was the American press that you read in Vietnam? They saying? gave us a newspaper called the Army Times or something Stars like that. Stars and stripes. Stars and stripes. There were two Army Times and yeah, Stars and stripes. Total bullshit. We're winning the war. These guys are going to lay down. A light at the end of the, all of the stuff you saw in American papers that you saw here. And Westmoreland, who was the commander-in-chief, uh, you know, would every once in a while say something in his... He, the guy was, like, made of stone. And, uh, you know, the war was... We're, we're going to be out of here soon. It's, it's ending and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of guys were looking around and saying, I don't think so. And every once in a while, it'd be, you know, an attack here or there. And then 1968, uh, Ted... Ted Offensive came, then I knew we were not getting out of there. January 31st? Yeah. And we couldn't get out of the BLQ, which was downtown. It was a, it was a, we were in an old uh, hotel. And uh, you couldn't go out in the street for like 10 days and then all kinds of stuff happening. So a as this is going on and on, then I get involved in some bazaar where they're asking for volunteers to uh, find figure out who, who, the bodies were because they were burnt up or blown up, and so I had to go to the morgue. I didn't have to, but I volunteered because no one else wanted to go. So I spent two days doing that, 
and well, just to be you, you were identifying bodies based on dental records. Correct. Right. They they would have the records of what they thought were the records of the person who was killed, and then you went and did uh, your dental examination. M- myself and specialist Fudge, who was my that was not his real name. <laughs> no, uh, and he he was a black kid from Harlem, and uh, <laughs> he actually saved my life because we're there for the first day and I'm like losing it. I mean, you, it, it, it's a body bag and it says head, head, foot and you open it up and there's this, what's left of these kids and some of them had maggots coming in. It was just, it was terrible. And they had a, a commission from the U.S., some senators and House of Representatives and general and uh, are walking around and they come to us and the guy... Uh, said, the senator says, how's it going, trooper? And I said, it's not going so good, sir. He says, what do you mean? He said, take a look at this. And he says, well, it's not my fault. I said, oh, yes, it is. And then we got into it and Fudge grabbed me. And he said, sir, this is not, you're not going to get anywhere with this. You just get into trouble. So, uh, and the next day I said to him, I can't do this. We can't do this anymore. So we did another day, and then we said, we're, we're done. And uh, we were losing 500 men a day. So they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't, there were two, two morgues. And so uh, we had the one in Saigon, and they were just coming in left and right. So uh, I guess that didn't do me any good. <laughs> uh, and then the other bad thing that happened, well, we had an MP unit up the street from us. And there must have been... I don't know, 20, 30 guys. These were MPs who had been up country, and some of them had been wounded, not badly enough, and they had been in a, a lot of, in the thick of battle, and they gave them what they thought was an easier job, an, an MP unit in Saigon. And right before the Tet Offensive, 17 guys got blown up in, in a truck about a block and a half away from us. You know, the bodies, parts of bodies all over the place, and we went out, and, the, you know, they... And nobody survived it. They were all killed. And I'm going, what the fuck is going on here? And uh, and then the other bad one was, I just made some crowns for a kid. He goes back to his unit, and he's walking across the tarmac, and a, a mortar goes off, and he gets killed. And we we drove right by, and I got out, and it was the kid. So... I realized this is suicide. It's never going to end. They're not giving up. And rightfully so. They shouldn't have given up. And so from there, I realized the U.S. government, a lot of instances, is full of shit. Look, we're not any worse or better than anybody else. However, we're not any better. And that's been proven uh, on down the line. You're talk, what you're talking about is you are witnessing things that run counter to what the, I guess, propaganda that you've been hearing. How did that, like, what did that do to you? How did you hold those two? It changed my view of life, of America, of politics, of how people really are, which I, I think has alienated me from a great deal of the number of people. Um, but... I, you know, it's the truth, and, you know, especially in this ridiculous presidential run-up, uh, you know, it couldn't be even more obvious how ridiculous the country has become, 
and how racially driven the country is. So, you didn't become like an activist. You you didn't become Ron Kovic. Like you didn't. You know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying you came back to a, the life that was kind of prescribed for you to be a professional, to buy a house in the suburbs, to have two kids, to send them to college. And yet you say that it would seem like things just sort of like happen as they were supposed to happen. And yet you describe yourself often, and you did here, as someone who is on the fringe, who is alienated from like the the sort of status quo who may walk in these circles, like the suburban, white, Jewish, upper-middle-class circles, but your mentality doesn't. And so that must have must be and must have been for the last 40-plus years uh, not so easy. Uh, absolutely. And I hear this from people, uh, especially right-wingers. You know, if you were so uh, into this, you would have... And, and my answer to that is, and I really believe this, it's... You can't really, as a, as, a, as a single person, no matter what you try to do, get anything done. I understand our organizations. I understand all that. But take a look at history. Look at what we've done. And there have been people who have been on thought like me have no impact. The government does what it's going to do. That's the way it works. It's a waste of your time and effort to try to you know become a, an activist. And I believe... Um, that, that, you know, what I was doing, I never thought it was, you know, uh, saving mankind, but at least I was a, a semi-active part of society doing what I would consider the right thing. And, uh, you know, I, I still believe that. So let's circle back just uh, briefly here. Um, you were, of course, because you were a basketball addict, you played when you were uh, in Vietnam. Right. And uh, there's like a regular game. You want that story? Myself and the two other guys uh, who played in college, um, we would go every day. They had a, an outdoor court with a roof over it. It was concrete, but it had a roof over it because this, the, it was, the heat was brutal. And we'd go and play, and they were the only other guys who played were black guys. And the games, you know, there were no fights or anything, but they, they, were, they were intense, and, and we were good. We go down to play this one time, and we did not know what had happened. We get on the court, and there's every single play there's a fight, guys, and you know, and we're not wearing our uniforms, so no one knows that we're officers. So we're getting the shit kicked out of us. Guys are just, you know, killing us. And I say to the other two guys, you know, something's wrong here. I'm not so. Let's go put our uniform on so that they know that we're officers, and we'll walk out of here. So we go in change, put the uniforms back on and walk out and the guys are like glaring at us, but they're a little, you know, a little nervous now. And then we found out what had happened. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King was shot and then two or, two or three weeks later, Kennedy was killed. I remember uh, thinking, oh, what's going on? This, this, is, this is, you know, not good. And, you know, there were riots and stuff in, in the United States. And, um, but I, that I remember, that was that was clear and obvious what 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 had gone on. But you didn't know what was happening. No, because we didn't we didn't to find out what had happened until after. So then we said, "Oh, I got you know," and then we we stayed away for a little bit. <laughs> but, but you know, you like a junkie, we eventually went back. Uh, so and they apologized, by the way, the guys. The, the guys did. Yeah. 
the, the and that, black but, guy. But was that the end of it? There was no, there's no, not a conversation about it. I assume. No, the, the they said. Well, what I mean is, when we got back and started playing again, they said, "We're sorry about that last game right before," and I said, "We understand," you know, and uh, that was it. What we didn't really talk about was guys like you who actually were lucky enough to come back. Um, what happened to them upon re-entry, which nobody talks about uh, right now. Um, the suicide rate of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans is well, through the, the roof. Yeah. Nobody's talking about that. So just, you know, the thing that I keep coming back to is you have this experience. It changes your mind on things. You go one direction or the other, but you can't really ever go back. After this, there was, and it's still to this day, and probably to my de- detriment, there's a right and a wrong. Anything else is bullshit. You can make up stuff. You can equivocate. You can do whatever you want. There's a right and a wrong. And as a country, we have done a lot more wrong, I think. We've done some good things, but we've done a lot more bad things than right. So that... How does this affect the mentality of... Right, the population. I mean, we talk. I, I ask that question because we talk a lot about how people think. Like <laughs> recently, you were quoted as saying, "I hate old people," <laughs> which is obviously funny. But you, you hate them because because they think one one way. They're a. They're only, and I understand that they're only interested in themselves and you know their physical being and how much money they have, and they think conservatively and probably that maybe rightfully but that's how it is and there's a certain way of thinking that's not they're not ready to uh, to hear anything different or new or changeable and that's just the way it is I, I don't care what anybody says yes there are a few people who but they've always been out there always been trying to you know but for the average white middle class or upper class American they don't want to hear this and that's part of how politics works. Plus, people never want to know that they've been wrong. Okay, I think it's I think it's all been so dark and depressing. <laughs> that's what I do. I bring dark and depressing. And it's, and it's time for the joke. Okay, okay. you ready? I'm, we're ready. Okay, three American Jews, a rabbi, a cantor, and the president of a synagogue. <laughs> are taking a humanitarian trip to New Guinea. <laughs> and their plane goes down, a crash. They are miraculously not hurt. But they are surrounded by a group of cannibals who emigrated to New Guinea several years ago because they couldn't get it. You know, the condos went under. So the chief cannibal who has a bone in his nose comes up and he says, listen, uh, I don't like to bring this up, but we're going to kill you and then eat you. But I'm going to grant you a wish. It goes to the one wish to the chief rabbi. And the chief, and he says, the chief rabbi says, okay, thank you. And he says, go ahead. Chief rabbi says, I would, for the, my whole life, I had a sermon that I've been working on and I must give it before I die. And it's all oh, 40, 45 minutes. And the cannibal says, okay, go ahead. He goes to the, Cantor, and he says, listen, same thing, I'm giving you one wish. And the cantor says, I have a song that I really, I have to get, I, I must sing it. 
and it's uh, 40 minutes. And Cannibal says, great, okay. He comes to the president of the synagogue and he says, kill me first. (laughs) 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 Original music for this episode is by Jordan Capizzi. You can find episodes of What We Will Abide on iTunes at samschindler.com and now on Facebook, too. podcast